0: Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gomelski talk about Signet acquiring Blue Nile and fall fashion trends. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gomelski, editor-in-chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from good old LA and i'm with
1: rob bates news director of jck and jck uh, jckonline.com calling in from good old new york city how are you
0: good i miss that good old new york city i overdue, and hopefully coming soon the fall is usually when i make my appearance so i will look forward to seeing you and uh yeah what about you are you going are you going anywhere in the next you are right you typically yes take-
1: when this drops as the kids say, I'll be uh, on uh, vacation. We're going someplace in New Jersey. It's Airbnb, and I think we're staying in this barn. It's going it's to be it's going to be interesting. So uh,
0: fun! Is it like a lake or something? Or yeah, there's
1: a lake a barn. I-, I don't know. I'm not. I <laughs> you just surprised. go where you're told. <laughs> I just go. Yeah, i was like oh yeah, it sounds great. A uh, barn. No, but yeah, but it's, it's supposed to be nice. I think there's like courses or something like that, and there's. Uh, I, I should actually know this. I don't. I don't. I probably sound like an idiot right now, but it's um, so
0: funny. You're, it's kind of like that in my house. I plan all the vacations, and even though I don't really complain about it, but I could see it. it just feels like Jim just goes where he's told.
1: Okay. gay. All right,
0: it's my plan, and you're just coming along for the ride. Yeah, but no,
1: I I usually say yes. So there you go.
0: And it's your anniversary too? When yes, you, it'll it?
1: be my 13th anniversary. That's
0: fantastic. You and Susan. Yeah. I can't believe it's been that long. I mean, That's I knew Susan enough. even before. Is it possible I knew her before you did? I think I might have because she worked yeah, at she was your
1: Tour. She was your replacement, I believe.
0: Yeah, but I thought we worked together at National Jeweler for... Yeah,
1: because you did the you were editing the magazine.
0: Couture. Or- yeah, Couture yeah. International Jeweler. Yeah, exactly. We weren't exactly colleagues, but we worked in the same company. So I, I met yes. her. I knew she came from... Um, well, Folio. Is- Thank you. She came from Folio, right? So yeah, 13 years of marriage, but you guys were together even before that. So
1: yes. It's been, a, it's been a long time yeah jeez
0: I love these geez. industry pairings that just somehow work it's perfect
1: anyway yes I'm excited about vacation
0: yeah you should be you know I am just after people are listening to this I'm actually heading to Copenhagen for a few days with my beloved just for a little bit and I'm excited because I, I did go I went when I was pregnant in 2018 and this will be fun this will be fun to go back and hopefully the weather the weather is good you never know with Denmark I think or Europe in general it can be a little unless you're in southern Europe I I think Sun can be very elusive so let's cross our fingers. Well big news big news in in this dog days of August we just learned that Signet is acquiring Blue Nile. Tell us what you know. And then I really was interested in your analysis piece on kind of what brought the company to this point and how it got here so I'd love to hear a bit more about that. But yeah tell us the the big news. Yeah
1: so I mean Signet bought Blue Nile from Bain Capital and two other investors price tag as many as have noted is less than its IPO, it was less than it paid for it originally. So there's, I guess, something of a loss there. It had filed for a SPAC, you know, are these quote unquote, like blank check companies that just exist to, to bring another company public. But the market's really soured on those. And, you know, it's not been a great time for IPOs in general. So I mean, maybe if this happened six months earlier, it could have gone public on its own steam, but it ended up being purchased by Signet for what I think most people think was an attractive price. And, you know, it's kind of Signet's general business MO, which is to acquire a lot of stuff, acquire stores. I mean, they used to acquire whole chains of stores and make them part of K. And, you know, just to keep acquiring the competition, they did it with Zale. Perhaps that's the most famous example, but, you know, they keep Acquiring the competition and kind of bringing it there. And it's one of the things uh, current management is focused on is growing market share. So, what's the easiest way to grow market share is to buy your competitors. And to me, it's interesting because, you know, one of the big issues, I mean, there was a bunch of issues at, at Blue Now, which we'll talk about in a second, but one of the big issues was Google and the high cost of what's called customer acquisition costs that you have to pay both Google and Facebook a lot of money to acquire customers and it keeps getting more and more expensive and it's very competitive. So if you consider that Blue Nile and James Allen, which is already owned by Signet, are two of the biggest purchasers of these Google AdWords, at least theoretically, you'd have less competition, right? So in a way, it shows that Google and Facebook and all these companies have gotten so big and put such burdens on companies that it's very difficult for even a decently sized company, and Luna was a pretty big company and had big backers behind it, uh, to compete, right? Because it's just gotten so expensive to advertise today. So in that way, it's kind of a troubling sign, not just For jewelry but just in general and i i think this is probably a good deal for signet i mean i haven't heard anybody say it's a bad deal for signet i think most people understand why they did it i think it probably makes business sense as far as blue nile is concerned it it probably it could have perhaps faced some financial issues had the spat not gone through or not been i guess consummated so i mean it, it definitely it gives it a home it keeps it alive So it probably contributes to the long-term sustainability of that particular brand. So in that way, it's a good thing. But people do worry, you know, how many good, viable businesses are now under this one umbrella? You see all this consolidation into one big company, and I think it worries people a bit.
0: It's fascinating, I mean, just to think about how long Blue Nile has already been around how it might morph or evolve now under the signet umbrella. I mean, it was founded, did you, was it 99?
1: 90. I, well, it, it was originally internet diamonds. And then I think it became, Blue Nile, I think in 2000 and uh, it, one public, I think, 2004, I believe, or 2005. Yeah, so it's been around a long time. And for, certainly for internet years, that's huge.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's been around as long as I have in this industry. And yeah. there have been so many companies that have come and gone. So there is something to be said. But how do you expect it to change under... Or, or, or will it change? What do you expect Signet to do with it?
1: You know, I had an interview with the CEO of Signet, and she said, you know, they're still thinking about it. They're still trying to figure out what they're going to do with it. There's questions people have wondered because it has a bunch of of these quote-unquote accessible luxury brands now it has james allen it has diamonds direct it has blue nile and it has jared so they're different brands and they communicate in a different way and they probably target a different demographic but they definitely there's some competition there and i think they've traditionally seen each other as competitors so i guess it's not 100 percent clear where it's all gonna fit and they may not know exactly where it fits and it's possible they may keep them all separate or bring them together. I don't think anybody really knows for sure. I mean, I think Blue Nile, I don't think it has the biggest brand name in the world, but I think it has a decent brand name. I think a lot of people know it. You stick around for 20 years, I think you become known and trusted. So it's not 100% clear what's going to happen. I think one thing people have wondered about is Blue Nile typically only uses uh, GIA reports and to some extent GCAL reports. And that's something they've been, they definitely have stuck with over the years. And people are wondering, you know, could that change since other Signet uh, banners use a wider variety of reports? Will they go into lab grown? I mean, it, it's very interesting. I mean, it's kind of a puzzle that she's going to have to put together.
0: Well, do we know if the, um, see, it's Sean Kell, right? Uh, yeah, is, he, is he sticking around or do we not know yet?
1: I asked that question and I guess we don't know. You know, sometimes these, when, when Zale was taken over, from what I understand, they expected everybody to stay and they all ended up So it's interesting because Blue Nile has become more jewelry oriented over the last couple of years. And one of the people driving that is the chief merchandising officer who used to work at Zales. So she left sales for Blue Nile. Now she'll be back at Zales, which is owned by Signet. You know, we've lived through mergers and takeovers and stuff like that. And it's, you know, it it can work out well in certain cases, but it's not, it can be a little tough for employees. So.
0: yeah. You know, I was just trying to remember Blue Nile has done some interesting things lately. And I'm trying to remember when this was, if it was in January of this year, January of 21. It's kind of terrible that I can't distinguish. But they did that collaboration with De Beers 10 by 10 and they had 10 designers. I think they were they weren't all BIPOC designers, but they were emerging designers who created this engagement collection of 10 pieces each using De Beers diamonds, all sold on Blue Nile, which was really interesting. I, I don't know how it performed. I don't know if everything sold out or not, but it was just cool to see these sort of different initiatives that you don't. I didn't really associate that kind of effort with Blue Nile. I thought of it as much more of a kind of traditional conservative marketplace, not something that really thought about emerging designers much. So I'll be curious to see if under Signet they try these different experiments, which I would love to see. I hope they do.
1: Yeah. And I, I thought, thought that was interesting and, and nice. Um, if you think about who founded Blue Nile, I mean, it it was basically founded by tech people, right? And they wanted to take it to the public market. And they weren't necessarily that interested in jewelry, but they were interested in building this kind of apparatus where people could get decent deals on engagement rings or with lesser margins than had traditionally been the case beforehand. And they weren't necessarily thinking about jewelry. And if you're going to expand, you have to kind of think about different creative ways. You can't just be this, quote unquote, Amazon of jewelry. In fact, one of the old CEOs said, we don't want to be the Amazon of jewelry. We want to have a point of view. We want to have something that's product. We want to have a signature we want to be more of a, a brand that speaks to people. And it, it, it's been something that there's been a push pull about because the core customers are very price focused, right? But you don't want that to be your whole thing because then you're just selling a generic product at uh, decreasing margins all the time. So it's been a journey. And yeah, I th- they've done some interesting creative things that you that were uncharacteristic and you hope that they will keep that up.
0: Well, all right. Well, I mean, good for Signet. They've obviously seized these opportunities. So they seem to be on a roll with acquisitions lately. I feel like consolidation has been one of these topics that seems to sort of always come back. I mean, even if there's a period where it doesn't feel like we're seeing a lot of it, it's just the natural way of the world, right? Businesses Uh get bigger, they swallow up their competitors, they put smaller brands out of business, and suddenly you have a landscape that just feels a lot thinner than it was when you maybe started in whatever industry you're in, whatever category you're in, and that does feel like the natural order of things. And maybe there's just a, a bit of that is just inevitable. If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews help make them possible. Please rate, review and subscribe to The Jewelry District wherever you may listen. And now back to the show.
1: You've been putting out a lot of special reports and you've been focusing on fashion for fall. Um, And we're just on the verge of fall. So what's that look like?
0: Yeah, so we we are on the verge of fall. Clearly Labor Day is looming. And I have been working on a series of special report newsletters that go out to our JCK subscribers. And the one that's been going out in August is dedicated to fall fashion. And a lot of it is fall fashion that we saw introduced at the Las Vegas shows, either JCK Las Vegas or Couture. So I've been taking stock of all that I saw there. And there definitely are themes that are emerging. Some of these are ongoing ongoing themes but I sh- I want to call out a few of them so people have them in mind as they're thinking about restocking for fall, you know, lining up their their cases for the holiday. One somewhat surprising but very endearing trend that seems to be gathering steam is animal-inspired jewelry. Animal-inspired jewelry, I mean, I think is as old as jewelry itself. I mean, people have been rendering animals in some form of jeweled format for decades, centuries, millennia, but we do see it come back in a bigger way every now and again. Now I spoke to maybe the preeminent expert on the category of late, Marion Faisal. She is editorial director of The Adventurine, which is her website. She's also a jewelry historian and author. She's written quite a bit about Bulgari. And for anyone who was lucky enough to see her Beautiful Creatures exhibition at the American Museum of Natural History in 2021, a year ago when it opened, I think it was there for about three months. And it was a an exhibition of beautiful bejeweled creatures, everything from, you know, snake jewelry to undersea creatures and all kinds of really historic pieces. She pulled a lot from the vintage world and from famous historic pieces and pieces in collections and owned by various people who loaned them. It was really an ode to this world of, you know, the menagerie and making that a bejeweled thing. People love that stuff. And what she told me when I spoke to her was that there are a couple of animals that have always reappeared and seem to really kind of dominate. When you look at animal-inspired collections, you'll always see these two animals. I wonder, Rob, if you can imagine or guess what those two animals are or creatures, I should say.
1: Well, you said creatures, so I'm thinking dragons, dogs, because everybody loves dogs, maybe cats.
0: These are all great guesses, but there are two creatures or animals that we see over and over again from different. Unicorn? Not unicorns. Not unicorns. Bizarrely
1: Godzilla
0: Godzilla. Don't no. we all want to be wearing Godzilla Strung around our necks No these two And they're they're very They're extremely symbolic And we've seen them yet again Coming in for the fall Which are snakes and butterflies So snakes mm. of course I mean Bulgari has, is most closely associated with a snake But of course we see it in jewelry collection after collection Year after year It's eternal love It's wisdom You know and it does have that beautiful serpentine shape So it works mm. well
1: it also has negatives. The, the reason I didn't say that, snakes are like, it also has a negative.
0: There is, but I think f- think the positive right now I also think just the aesthetic of the snake works well for jewelry because it's got that beautiful curve it can curve around your finger and make a beautiful ring you know it almost has like a it could curve into like an infinity symbol if you wanted it to so there's something just aesthetically very classic and graphic and simple about it and I think people do reach for these other associations with it you know maybe the eternal love that circle of a snake will suggest and also just historic jewelers have done so well with it you know vulgar being the, the number one with its Serpenti collection. The other one, of course, is the butterfly. And, and I personally am really touched by that particular symbol of late. It, it's, it means a lot to me. And in fact, I'm wearing a butterfly pendant right now from the De Beers collection. So De Beers introduced a big butterfly collection, but so many jewelers did butterflies this year. And when I spoke to Marion about it, she talked about how the butterfly clearly represents rebirth, transformation, and coming out of the pandemic. It, it has been so resonant with people that people are responding to that image. Jewelers are putting it out there. I'm assuming customers are buying it. So it's interesting that we have these two creatures that do come in again and again and are very resonant with people at the moment. But we're seeing all kinds of, I mean, Levion had a giant collection of animal inspired pieces called Beautiful Creations. They had a rooster necklace. They had, I think, a jellyfish and an octopus pendant. I mean, just creatures you don't even typically see.
1: Yeah, oh, is most of the stuff pendants and necklaces or?
0: Yeah, a lot. But the snake and the butterfly lend themselves well to earrings and even to rings. There are some, but yeah, a lot of the funkier kind of more unusual animals do make better sense for a pendant. There's just something. And also, you know, in the vintage space, I think these historic, like panthers from Cartier and snakes from Bulgari. And I think Van Cleef has a history of doing butterflies. So even in the vintage space, I checked in with somebody from First Dibs and they'd seen sales of animal inspired vintage pieces, jewelry pieces, soar like 300% year on year. And so there is something in the air. It feels very zeitgeisty, which is a word I used in a headline about Levion's new animal inspired collection. I think people just associate with these traits and these characteristics they see in animals. Sometimes it's just beauty. Like you see a dragonfly pendant and there's just something gorgeous about it because there's so many different colors and the, sometimes they're rendered in enamel and there's a diaphanous quality to it. So sometimes it's purely the aesthetics of the animal. A lot of it too is the Zodiac has been extremely popular and we're seeing different takes on Zodiac symbols. And clearly there are a lot of animals in the Zodiac. So we're seeing animals infused into jewelry in, in all from all these different directions. So anyway, I don't need to spend hours on it but just know that pieces that are inspired by animals or that evoke different animals and their different traits and so on are quite popular.
1: Maybe it's uh, people want to get back to nature and back to the natural world or yeah,
0: very much so. I think that's how Levy on Eddie Levy on the CEO framed it is we're just trying to reconnect with these more primal you know forces of life I guess and sort of channel some of their energy. I don't know that buyers when they look at these pieces are thinking, oh well, you know there's a bear pendant, I want to feel powerful. I don't think it's that clear cut. I just think there's something very visceral and a sort of a instinctual attraction you feel to certain animals. It may be because of these inherent kind of qualities that we associate with certain animals. Like, I don't know what you'd associate with an octopus other than, you know, it's really meant to be quite brilliant and kind of odd. And so I don't know who would buy an octopus pendant, but I love that there's one available, if not more. Anyway, other themes that are resonating. So I just did a a roundup I talked to for one of my freelance assignments to jewelry dealers. And I can't tell you how many people talked about the 80s and 90s jewelry, which maybe it'll throw you for a loop when you hear about 90s as being a vintage piece. But technically the term vintage applies to anything that's 20 years old or older. So here we are in 2022 and anything made in 2002 or prior is considered vintage, which is pretty wild. Part of it is that a lot of that jewelry that was made in the 80s and 90s is now finally coming to market. People are getting older, their estates are aging, and it's time to refresh that jewelry or sell it or whatever. So there's just more of it available. But there is something about that 80s look. And I just did a piece on it that's running in this special report. Have you ever heard of the golden 40 year rule? No. So it's this idea that in pop culture, we see these waves of nostalgia for things that happened 40 years ago. And it has to do with the creatives who are making pop culture when they hit their 40s, or maybe their 50s, they're getting nostalgic for their youth, which was about 40 something years ago. And so they start celebrating it. So when we saw Mad Men come to the fore, you know, it was what the early 2000s and people were getting nostalgic for their youth in the 60s. And so I've always been fascinated by that because you do sort of see these eras that become, you know, for a while when we were in the 90s, nobody would have touched the 80s with a 10 foot pole. People thought the 80s were at least I did. I thought they were pretty gross, you know, like those terrible colors and horribly outdated aesthetics and hairdos and so on. But now 40 years later, people are like, hey, that's pretty cool. You know, and there was something about that era the power dressing. There were a lot of strong female characters. There was, you know, Working Girl and Moonlighting, and of course, Dynasty and Dallas and these iconic shows of the period where, of course, they wore these big, glamorous jewels. They were gold. They were bold. And there is definitely that vibe hitting this fall, even clip on earrings, you know, the kind you would have seen in those shows, even though it feels a little out of step with like the economy, you know, who wants to celebrate consumerism at a time when inflation is out of control. I don't know. They they sort of coexist in these weird ways, these sort of trends that you might think they undermine each other, but they sort of are out there in the the zeitgeist. And so the 80s, certainly there's a vibe and it, it I'd been talking, you know, we'd been hearing about it since the spring earlier this year. And I wonder, I do wonder if it has to do with this 40 year rule of people just getting sentimental about when they were kids, even if they don't recognize it, they're just drawn to these things for reasons that are hard to name and hard to understand, but feel right.
1: And how, how does that translate? I mean, because I could think of 80s fashion, like shoulder pads were big, right? And big hair and stuff like that. But how would that translate in a jewelry sense?
0: I mean, there was a lot of jewelry then. Think about Madonna and her pile on phase. I mean, there's a lot of chains. We've been seeing those for, you know, at least a year or two now, but a big emphasis on gold chains and layers of them and all kinds of different chains, omega chains and herringbone chains and these kinds of perhaps more esoteric chains that are coming in anew. Hoop earrings, certainly big, dramatic hoops. Sometimes in in a more bulbous way, like there's a bigger curvature to them. There's bigger... Tubing, you know, they're refreshed for for a contemporary audience. So there's sprinklings of colored stones. There's sprinklings of pave in a way maybe you wouldn't have seen in the 80s. So a lot of it is just big and bold. And so there's a big resurgence in interest in 80s and 90s Cartier, 80s and 90s Bulgari, Charles Crypel, Marina B. I think about as quintessential 80s jewelers. So I think that bold gold look is probably the biggest way it, it comes to the fore that people will recognize it today. Even people who, I mean, you know, for millennials who would have been young in the 80s, you know, if if even barely born. And certainly Gen Z, who has no inkling of what life was actually like in the 80s, but is part of our general nostalgic pop culture. And so for them, the 80s are like maybe the 60s or 70s were to us. I think it's fascinating when these eras come back because for, I think, a long time that jewelry does feel so outdated in the immediate, you know, as it dies, as the 80s end and people move on to new. Aesthetics and new motifs and new styles. You know, you kind of you don't want to wear anything from that earlier era. It feels so outdated, and inevitably, of course, as we know with all of jewelry, it comes back. And so never. You know, if you really want to stay current, don't get rid of any of your jewelry. Just have the confidence to sit on it for a long time and it'll come back. So the 80s, for sure. Turquoise, we've seen a ton of that. We saw a ton of it in Vegas in really interesting uses. And, you know, I I don't think this is a newsflash to anybody, but turquoise was, you know, always considered a summer stone, something that you'd buy at the beach or you'd wear with your white jeans and your other summer ensembles. And it has really transcended that. It is a, a serious stone used by serious designers in interesting ways. So we see a lot of that. Um, We've seen a lot of evil eyes. These motifs, some of them really came into their own during the pandemic or around the time, and they felt right for a period when people did want jewelry that felt like armor in some way or protection. And that very much continues. I think that layering trend that has given so much oomph to the industry, because of course, when you layer, there's just cause to constantly buy more jewelry. But there's something about the dainty layers that is starting to feel dated to me, at least. We've just seen so much of that look, even though it does allow for so much personalization, it does feel a little played out. So I do think we're seeing a shift to more statement pieces. So, you know, a single really wow piece that takes the place of, you know, five different bangles on your wrist or five different thinner bracelets, you know, maybe in line with that power dressing mode that we saw in the 80s. Also mixed metals. I think when gold and when the economy starts feeling a little like things are going up in price, not only do jewelers want to offer pieces that are a little more accessible and affordable, you know, consumers obviously are looking for that. So we see more white metal coming into the picture, more silver. So these mixtures of silver and gold, two-tone approaches, I think are becoming a little more popular. So it is fascinating. There's a lot to buy, a lot to say, and um, certainly a lot of cool jewelry out there. So hopefully people will take advantage of it. I think there's wonderful stuff out there.
1: After this uh, long, hot summer, we could use a nice cool fall. Amen. Take care, everyone.
0: Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you'll join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.